Thanks, Nicole. Kind of an extended passage there. As Lawrence said, we are continuing our study of the Pentateuch, which is literally just means the five books, also called the Torah, the first five books in the Bible. The Law of Moses is another name for it. And um, the, the story is really about um, what God is doing in this world, and it begins with God creating, explaining what, what, what went wrong with humanity, and God's promise to renew um, all of his creation through a future man that would come and destroy death, and then that man was going to come from the nation of Israel. And so we've been almost a year in the series. We started last fall, um, and uh, we're going to continue to work through uh, the book of Deuteronomy. We'll finish up in mid-December. Um, but we know that you know Israel, God, God promised this future man that would bring life back to his creation. Uh, the nation of Israel is going to be the people through whom this man comes. And so we began just as a, as a family, Abraham and Sarah and their kids, and eventually it became Jacob and his, and his children, and then they went to Egypt and they became millions of people over about a 400-year time frame. And then we saw and read about the, the story of God's deliverance, the famous story of God bringing Israel out of Egypt from harsh slavery and infanticide and brutality. Um, and we come to the book of Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're finishing up Numbers today. And so here they are. They have been wandering around in the wilderness for about 40 years. God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And so for two years, they traveled to get to this land, and they came to the edge of the land. They sent spies into the land to see what the people were going to be like that they would overcome. God promised, I will be fighting for you. You will overcome these other nations. I will give you this land. They sent the spies in. The spies feared the size of the people. And feared the size of their cities. And they came back and told the nation, there's no way. There's no way that we can take over these people. So they disbelieved God and they despised him. And we saw that a few weeks ago that then God um, cursed that generation and said, none of you will enter into the land. You're going to wander around for 40 years until everyone in that first generation dies. And so they have been in the wilderness for almost 40 years. And so the wilderness is the context for the people of Israel. The wilderness is the context for the people here in the, in the book of Numbers. They are not at home. And if anyone has spent any considerable time camping or backpacking or hiking or anything like that, you can begin to have a sense of what it means to be, quote, in the wilderness, and so it's tough for a few days to be in the wilderness. But imagine two years, that'd be really hard. And had it not been for God's provision of food, provision of water, provision of protection from the other nations, um, they would not have survived. For 38 years then, they wandered around after that initial two years before they dis dis learned that they could not go into the land. So 40 years in the wilderness surviving by God's faithfulness, 
But again, Israel's time in the wilderness is known as losing hope, rebelling, and ultimately rejecting God and the leadership that God provided through Moses and Aaron. And so the wilderness was tough. No home, food, water, the basic necessities were hard to come by. In fact, the passage that was read this morning, it says that Israel was not counted among the nations. They really didn't even have an identity. From the, in, in terms of how the other nations saw them, they didn't have an identity. They were not counted among the nations. And so as we read, um, we need to kind of put ourselves into this place of the wilderness, not to imagine us being actually in the wilderness, but to recognize that many of us come to the text without a sense of, of home, without a sense of where we're going, without a sense of identity, without a sense of how am I going to uh, obtain what I need for life? I mean, we have all of the material things around us, but we all know that the material things around us don't provide us what is really needed for a vital life, a wholehearted life, a life of, of joy and prosperity, the, 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 the life that God is promising his people and has promised his people since the beginning. So we may have what we need from a material standpoint, just like Israel had what they needed from a material standpoint, but because of their a disdain toward God and lack of gratefulness toward God, they really weren't experiencing life, which is what caused them to increasingly rebel. And so the, the text today um, is really from the perspective, an, an unusual perspective. And so predominantly throughout the story of Israel, we've we have read about stories about the people themselves, about Moses, about Aaron, about the nation of Israel. Here we come to a text, and it's actually several chapters long, and it's, gonna, it's a little bit of a difficult sermon because of what I'm trying to do with it over such a long section of text. But it really covers what amount to four poems. And it's... it's the, the story behind these four poems, um, Israel's not a character. They don't have an active part in this story. It's a foreign king who hires a foreign prophet. And it's looking at Israel from the outside. It's a picture of what, of what God is doing from the perspective of those who are not among God's people. So it's a re really unique perspective that we have. The story takes up really about 10 chapters. And so what I want to do is just kind of um, explain the story, the context behind these, these oracles that, that were read and insert them into that context and see what, what is in this text for us as readers. So Israel is at the plains of Moab. They are at the threshold of the promised land. The Moabite king, Balak, has just been defeated by the Amorites, and they took a big piece of his land. So his armies are weak, um, a lot of his land has been taken, and he looks down upon the plains. He's in the hills. His city is in the hills. They're looking down upon the plains, and they see this, this massive nation of Israel. And it's been 40 years since God delivered Israel from Egypt, but that story is still a prominent story in the nations in that area. 
And so he said, I have heard of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. I have heard of their conquering of these other nations. And so Balak, this foreign king, this king of Moab, is frightened. He's frightened that that Israel is just going to completely wipe him out and his nation as well. And so he hires, so he, he, he interacts with some of the other leaders of the nations around, and he, they hire this seer, this prophet, this diviner to curse Israel, saying that whomever you curse is cursed, whomever you bless is blessed. So here's this man named Balaam, and he's not of the nation of Israel, and he's got some sort of connection to the spiritual world that the text really doesn't explain. But they want to hire him to curse Israel. And so he says, well, I can only say and I can only do what God tells me. Um, And then, but he then asks God, God, what do you want me to do? And God tells him, "Uh, no, I don't want you to have anything to do with Balak and these other nations. Don't go. Well, they send another group of messengers, and he says, you know, so I can only do and say what God tells me to do and say, but let me go ask God again. And so he goes and asks God again, and God says, okay, go ahead and go with them, but only do what I tell you to do. So he goes, but God is mad at him. because, And, he, and God says, your way is perverse. Your way is not pure, Balaam. You're not wholehearted. See, because Balaam goes, and Balaam is sitting on the donkey, and you may be familiar with this story. It's one of those weird stories that you read in the Old Testament that you can remember because it's kind of strange. Um, And so Balaam goes on his donkey to Balak to see the king and these these other leaders. But God, because he's angry with Balaam, sends his angel to kill him. The donkey sees the angel and he, and he goes a different way. But then the angel moves and stands in front of Balaam and his donkey. And so again, the donkey goes a different way. But eventually they get to a place where the angel is standing right in the way of the donkey. The donkey has no way of going, so the donkey just sits down. Well, at each of these times, Balaam hits his donkey. Well, God gives the donkey the ability to speak and And so the donkey confronts Balaam. Why are you hitting me? I have served you faithfully all of these years. Why are you hitting me? And then God opens Balaam's eyes to see this angel that was sent to kill him. And then God says, Balaam, your way is perverse. Had your donkey not stopped, you would be dead. And then Balaam again goes, okay, Lord, I... I, I confess that I am evil. What do you want me to do now? <laughs> if you don't want me to go, I won't go. Well, God told him three times ago, don't go. But he, God says, okay, go ahead and go, but only do and say what I tell you to do and say. And so he goes and he talks to, 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 to Balak. And, and Balak says, I'm going to give you a big pile of money. I want you to curse Israel. He says, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. So he does this three times. And we read the oracles. And each of the times, Balaam doesn't curse Israel. Balak blesses Israel. In fact, the blessing expands. The greatness of the nation of Israel expands. 
and the, um, the promise of this king of Israel that would come and, and conquer all of the nations of the world, that, that gets expanded and enlarged. So by the time you get to the four oracles, um, you have this, this nation of Israel with a king who is going to rule all of the other nations forever. And whoever is on the side of Israel will be blessed. Whoever is not is going to be essentially destroyed. So Balaam can't curse Israel. And Balak is obviously angry, and they go in their separate ways. But the story doesn't end there. Balaam, whose way is not pure, and who kept kind of going back and asking God if he should do this or not. Well, what he did was that he went to Balak and the leaders of the other nations and said, listen, I can't curse Israel, but here's what you can do to bring judgment upon Israel. If, if you get your women to go and seduce the men of Israel, the men of Israel will follow those women and eventually become worshipers of Baal, like your nation worships Baal. That's what Balaam told him. So Balak and these other leaders, they said, okay, that sounds like a good plan. So they sent their women to interact and to seduce the men of Israel, and it worked. And the men of Israel became worshipers of Baal, which brought immediate judgment from God. 24,000 of them were killed. And then there's a renumbering of the people since so many people had died. And so this is one of the sections in Scripture that gives reason for the book to be called Numbers. And so this, this, this huge episode ends with God telling Israel, okay, I want you now to go and attack Moab and the Midianites because of what they did to Israel. And so they go, and 12,000 armed men of Israel go and attack these two nations. The nations are destroyed, and it says that Balaam is killed. And Balaam is mentioned in several places in the Old Testament, and then also uh, in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, there is a warning given to the churches to avoid the teachings of Balaam. And so this, this again, this, this is a... Strange story, you got these four poems, and we read the poems of Scripture, and we oftentimes kind of just get through them fast because it's not the narrative. It's much easier for us to pick up the narrative, to pick up the story. But these four poems, these oracles, are very unique and very important. If you remember some time ago, I think it was last fall, we talked about the, the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, um, consisting of narrative, it's the story, consisting of law, it's all these legal codes, and then consisting of poetry. And so we saw that the poetry is what keeps the reader focused on the main storyline. And this is, there's not very many poems. So one of the, 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 uh, the, the big poem that we see at the end of Genesis is the blessing that that Jacob gives to his 12 sons and the blessing to Judah, which has hints of it here in these oracles, is that the scepter will never depart from Judah. This, this imagery of a king that all of the nations will bow down to. And then there's the, the song after Israel defeats Egypt 
at the Red Sea. There's a song about Israel being a victorious nation and that the Almighty will rule forever over them. And then this is the next poem, all the way through several books. And the imagery around um, Israel's power as a nation and this future king, this is as strong as it has been to this point in the Bible. And so this poetry is very important. And the characters in the story give us a way of, of, of understanding and setting in context this poetry. So the Bible uses characterization uh, for us to connect to. And so we have these characters that are developed in this story. The first character is Balak. Balak is this defeated king. He's heard of Israel's victories. He's afraid of what they're going to do to his nation. And he has an option. Am I going to be a nation that blesses Israel? Because some of the nations along their 40-year history in the wilderness have been helpful. Not very many, but have been helpful, some. So he has an option. Am I going to be helpful to this nation? Or am I going to seek harm for this nation? He doesn't humble himself, even though he has knowledge of their consistent victories since they destroyed Egypt. He doesn't humble himself. In his arrogance and in his stubbornness, he persists as an enemy of God. So Balak is an enemy of God. He's your prototypical enemy of God. Despite all of what he can see and despite of what he knows, he's still going to resist submitting himself to God and aligning himself with his people. And then we come to Balaam. Balaam is a prophet for hire. He's an outsider. He's not of the nation of Israel, but he has some connection with the spirit world and some connection with God. He has knowledge of God. He has an experience of talking with God. In fact, it even says that he even says that Yahweh is his God. He knows God personally. He knows the personal name of God. He, you even see some progress with Balaam. The first two oracles, the first two times he seeks an understanding of what God is going to do. He, he pursues omens. He pursues visions probably in a way similar to what he would normally would do in any sort of divination, future-telling. But the, third oracle, the third, or, third oracle, he stops looking for omens. In the first two, God gave him specific words to say. It's as, it's as if God took over his tongue. The third one, it says he stopped looking for omens and he just looked at the nation of Israel and it says the Spirit of God came upon him and he pronounces this, this beautiful, extravagant vision of the nation of Israel and of a king that would come from them and, and conquer the nations and rule the nations. It says that his eyes become open. So the first two times, excuse me, the, the third and the fourth oracle say, say this at the beginning. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. So he's describing himself. The oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the word of God. Who sees the vision of the Almighty. 
falling down with his eyes uncovered. So he describes himself as somebody who now has personal knowledge of God. His eyes have been opened, just like his eyes were opened to see the angel that was about to kill him. And it says, I have fallen down. My eyes are uncovered. I've humbled myself. So he he doesn't consider himself any longer blind to knowledge of the true God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what happened to him? Here is a man who experienced God, knew of God, was was empowered in some way by his Holy Spirit, but ended up opposing God and opposing his people. The text later reveals that ultimately, Balaam loved money. Balaam loved gain more than he loved God and his purposes and his people. And then we have Israel. So we have, we have an enemy of God in Balak. We have someone that has known God in some way, but when, when push came to shove, he pursued the love of money and material prosperity rather than God and his people and was destroyed. So then you have Israel. Israel really has no role in this story. They are They are something that is being observed. And they're in the wilderness waiting for the first generation of people to die. They are unaware. The text gives you no indication that they are aware of what is going on in these mountains above them. They don't know that Balak and Balaam are in this exchange, in this effort to bring a cursing upon them. But I think it's interesting to see. Remember a few sermons ago, we looked at Numbers chapter 13 and 14 when when they tested God the tenth and final time, where they didn't believe that God would bring them victories in, this foreign, in the foreign land, in the promised land. And they feared. They feared these other nations. They despised God and didn't believe him. Even though God had made all these promises, and even though God had brought them so much victory beforehand, they feared the other nations. And here you have a king of one of these foreign nations He's confident. He's confident that Israel is going to be victorious. He's confident that his nation is going to be destroyed. So you you have in, in Israel what seems to be a lesser faith than this foreign king who was an enemy of God. And then this fourth character is the donkey. He sees God, and he responds accordingly. And so as we think about the characters in this story, and as we read it, we necessarily need to ask ourselves, where are we in this collection of characters? Am I an enemy of God, like Balak? Do I claim to know God? Do I even claim to have spiritual experiences? Have I really had some spiritual experiences? But ultimately, in the end, I find that I just continue to please myself. I continue to do what I think is going to be best for me, even though I know that that God does what he says. Do I see see myself as counted among God's people, but inconsistent in faith? Or do, do we see ourselves like the donkey? 
Now the text, the text uh, isn't going, uh, it, the intent of the text is not for us to um, see ourselves like the donkey. And we wouldn't want to identify ourselves with Balak. Certainly we wouldn't want to think, ah, yeah, I'm, I, I, I want to be an enemy of God. Nor would we really want to identify ourselves with Balaam but maybe if we were looking truthfully at ourselves, we would have to say, no, I am an enemy of God. Or, no, I, I, yes, I've had knowledge of God. Yes, I've had experiences with God. But, but in the end, I really compromise. That if we're being true, to some degree, I think we all would have to say, yeah, I'm a compromiser. But I don't think we would necessarily want to identify with Israel either. Israel... Uh, they are under judgment. Now, one of these oracles says that God has found no trouble with Israel. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, from the eyes of God, God sees Israel as this group of people who are going to receive his promises. The promises that he made to, to man and woman in the garden to provide a child, a man that would bring life to all creation. The promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them into a nation more numerous than the sands of the seashore. God sees Israel as this promised people. But here Israel is this faithless people who are under judgment and who can never seem to fully grab hold of faith and to obey God. That's what he says in Numbers 14. When are you going to believe me? When are you going to obey me? When are you going to love me? And so we really don't want to identify ourselves with any of these characters. And who wants to be a donkey? But that's really not the point of the text. The point of the text in these characters is to see ourselves. We are, at some way, one of those three. An enemy of God, or an, or an outsider who has had some visions and some experiences with God, but doesn't take the full step. Or somebody that considers them to be among the people of God, but yet are, are, are continually faithless and unbelieving and disobedient. The text wants us to see ourselves as one of those places. But it doesn't want us to aspire to one of those places. The text wants us to aspire to something else. And I want, I want to reread the last oracle. And this is not an oracle that comes out of a response that Balak makes to Balaam for another cursing. This is one that just spontaneously comes out of Balaam, and he says, come, let me show you what's going to happen in the latter days, how these people are going to treat your people. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, which is a unique phrase in this one. He has knowledge now that is unique and different from the ones before. He sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. 
So if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, God said to the woman, you will have a son who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is the enemy of God. So here we have Moab, Balak, the enemy of God, and this same language, this, this scepter shall rise out of Israel and crush the forehead of Moab, the enemy of God. So it's connecting those two texts together. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. This is a future. Valiantly in conquering and ruling the nations, not because of them, but because of this king. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. What we are to aspire to is life under this king, this scepter that shall rise out of Israel, this king that shall come out of Jacob. That is what these poems are driving the reader to. Whether we see ourselves as the enemy of God, an outsider who knows enough about God to respond but never does and still pursues his own way, or among the faithful, among the people of God, but who really are ultimately unfaithful. Wherever we see ourselves in that, it's driving us to faith and to look forward to this future king. See, the, the true people of God, and so, you know, the Apostle Paul will spend some time in the book of Romans on this. He says, not all of Israel was the true Israel. And not all of the people who consider themselves in the church are really in the church. The people of God are the people who believe and follow the Lord God and this king that he is going to send. If we want to be in the victorious, valiant nation, we need to be under the king who is leading the charge. I don't, I don't know if I've shared this publicly in the church. I'm sure I have at some point, and some of you have heard the story. When I was 16, we had moved from Missouri to Iowa. It felt like a wilderness. We actually lived in a forest. We got an acreage. So, but I left everything I knew. I had everything I needed materially, but I felt lost. I felt hopeless. I was afraid. All my friends were gone. You know, it was really hard. I was a sophomore in high school, moved as a junior in high school. Everything I felt like was ripped out. Who am I? And I listened to the band Metallica back then. Still do, not as much. But they have a song about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is a passage in Revelation chapter 6. They are part of the judgment that God brings in the latter days. This text refers to these latter days. And so my mom said, hey, George, the four horsemen, they got that stuff out of the book of Revelation. I go, 
no way. Really, we're at in Revelation. She says, I don't know. It's just they're somewhere in the book of Revelation, the four horsemen, because the four members of the band Metallica consider themselves the four horsemen. It's a long story. But So I went down that night, and I started reading the book of Revelation. I get to chapter 6. There's the four horsemen. I said, i gotta, I got to finish this story. So I finished the story, two or three hours of reading, and I got to the end. I said, you know what? I don't understand most of what I just read, but I'm clear about one thing. In the end, Jesus wins. In the end, Jesus wins. He's the king that returns and leads his people valiantly over the enemies of God and the nations of the world that have surrounded themselves and allied themselves with the serpent and the Antichrist and have created an opposing nation to the nation of God's people. So I was pretty clear. The king is going to return. He's going to renew his world. He's going to crush his enemies. And he's going to lead his people into an eternal kingdom. I said, you know what? That's what I want. And it, was, it, it rung true to me. The Spirit of God gave me understanding, gave me faith, and I believed it. And I believed it. And that was the moment of when I gave my life to Jesus Christ because he's the king. And he's going to return. You know, um, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. So we, we can understand and have a vision of Christ because of what we read, beginning with the earliest books in the Bible that get more and more full as the text unfolds and finally reveals who is this king. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ, and he is calling a people to himself. And the message is still the same. Believe in me and become a part of my people. And so we're all left after reading this text. What are we going to do? Are we going to continue on as an enemy? Are we going to continue on as an outsider who never really makes a full commitment? Or are we going to continue on as, as someone who doesn't believe, doesn't obey? Jesus will return, and he will establish his people, and he will bring judgment. Let me pray. God, thank you for uh, the, the beautiful texts, these poems, the, sto the stories, these colorful and strange characters. Father, we, uh, we pray that uh, you would help us to be your people. We don't want to be a compromised people. And Lord, if there are, there are those in here today that, that um, are still seeing themselves on the outside, but, but really see the value of what it would mean to come in, that would see what it means to know Christ personally. We pray, God, that you would impress upon them to take that step of true faith and obedience. And God, that you'd strengthen us who claim to be your people to, to fully believe in you, to fully obey, knowing that, Lord God, you have sent your Son to judge the world and that we are guilty of our sins. But thankfully, not only did you send your son to reign and to judge, you sent him to die, that our sins could be forgiven, 
And so, God, we acknowledge our sins before you. We acknowledge our need for Jesus Christ uh, to forgive us our sins and to lead us in the way. We ask, God, that you'd strengthen us in these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.